Tim, thank you so much for joining this evening. This evening. And um, perhaps you might start Are you on? by turning my microphone on. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about um, where you're from, your family, perhaps a bit about where you grew up. Yeah, fair enough. Well, thank you for having me. Nice to see you here, Claire. And uh, I'm so, well, I am, I'm Tim. I'm the Member of Parliament for Westmoreland and Lonsdale. As Andy says, that is up north. It's very up north. It's nearly Scotland. That's how north it is. Uh, basically, the Lake District, bits of the Yorkshire Dales, Kendall's the big town. And uh, we go up as far as Grasmere, and it's all very lovely. I'm from slightly further south than that, from, from Lancashire. My family were dotted around places like Blackburn, Preston, Blackpool, Bolton. We grew up sort of nearer Preston than anywhere else. Um, my mum and dad, um, they divorced when I was five, but my dad uh, was always a, and still is an important part of, uh, of my, my life. My little sister Jo is in Australia with her family. I've got a little brother, uh, Robert, who uh, lives at home with my dad um, and is a, a wonderful man. And what can I tell you? I'm married to Rosie. We've got four kids. And as I've hinted already, I'm a Blackburn Rovers supporter. That's three quarters of my life. And it's usually, it was wonderful for a period of time in the 1990s, and now I just live with permanent disappointment. Um, but I'm also a Liberal Democrat, so that's life, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, all sorts of schmaltzy things I could tell you about my wife. Obviously, I love my wife and my children. Um, and uh, but the things that are not quite. Jurgen Klopp said that football is the most most important of the unimportant things. That's quite a good way of putting it, really. Uh, but other unimportant things that are important to me. Uh, I'm a pop music anorak. I used to be in a terrible, terrible band. We were once written off as a fourth-rate new order. I was quite proud of that. If you're going to be fourth-rate anything, be a fourth-rate new order. Uh, I, um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I collect vinyl and I'm a bit obsessive with that kind of thing. I'm a runner, although not at the moment, for I have a torn medial meniscus, which is bad. Uh, but apparently, if I behave myself, I can go running just before Christmas. So I've done um, various trail runs and the Windermere Marathon this year. And uh, I'm at the moment on a, a, a rate of doing one marathon a year. So I need to be well enough to do another one in 2024. So I think that is good for my, my mind and my body. And um, it's a great way of seeing beautiful places in the Lake District. And is it right that you actually won Celebrity a Mastermind with your specialist subject being Blackburn Rovers? It's true, yes. I did win Celebrity Mastermind. And I, I wonder, because my, my, they give you, first of all, the questions are a lot easier on Celebrity Mastermind than they are on Normal Mastermind. I want to just emphasise this. Uh, but I did get... Um, all top marks and no passes um, for Blackburn Rovers in the 1990s, which is quite a narrow band, really. The, I was um, my first choice was the um, the music of Prefab Sprout, um, but apparently the researchers couldn't find enough material, written material, to write questions. Um, so, but there was apparently um, to write uh, to ask a bunch of questions on Blackburn Rovers in the 1990s. Given I'd been to just about every game in the 1990s and only the only two books in existence that they could possibly have read, it was actually much more, much less impressed than it appears. And I'm just turning to politics. Then, I mean, what what got you into politics in the first place? Well. It's easy to give very neat testimonies in one's politics as it can be with one's faith. The, the reality is that uh, I was a person who was interested in politics. The 80s was a time of very colourful political characters. And, uh, and for example, in a time when you know, there were, what, four channels and Spitting Image was on every Sunday night, it seems to me there were two major for kids my age at my school in the 80s, and I, you know, I started secondary school in 81 as an 11-year-old, so there were two major communal televisual events, something we don't have enough of these days with the world as it is, um, that everybody the day after at school will be talking about, and one of them was Top of the Pops Thursday night, Friday morning, it'll all be did you see, did you see, did you see in the playground. The other was Spitting Image on a Sunday night. And so if you don't remember it, it was a, uh, a, a half-hour kind of satirical show where the major politicians of the day were represented 
as, as latex puppets. And so politics was interesting. The characters were interesting. Um, I, was, um... I, I, I also... But it wasn't just that I found politics interesting as an, as an art form or anything like that. It was also um, that I remember a particular event, again, which was something to do with the fact that there were only four channels in those days. I was in our living room, don't know where my mum or my sister were, but I was sat there and on came a black and white film that I didn't like the look of, but could not be bothered to get off my backside and go and turn over. And it was Cathy Come Home. Uh, a repeat of it, um, so it was already an 18-year-old uh, film even by that stage, as I watched it as a 14-year-old, and if you don't know it, it's a story based on um, lots of true stories about a woman called Cathy, uh, you know, life is not easy with her, her and her husband, but it becomes catastrophically awful fairly quickly, and she ends up homeless on the streets, and the fine, as, the, as the credits roll, as the social workers are taking her kids off her on the street, and she shouts, you're not having my kids. Um, you know, so it brought me to tears, and I joined Shelter the next day. As a 14-year-old, I cobbled together £1.50 worth of um, pocket money, which I would normally have spent on a Smith single, or maybe three Smith singles. Um, but in any event, uh, I, uh, I went down to the post office and bought a postal order, which is a thing that some of you will understand, um, and I sent off and joined Shelter. So that was my kind of first political act. I don't think I immediately connected what I thought about housing and homelessness, uh, with uh, one political party or another. If I'm honest with you, in the 80s, um, you know, obviously Margaret Thatcher was preeminent. I quite admired her. I quite admire anybody who's deliberately... Un uh, and, uh, and I... Uh, and, but I kind of... Um, I, got, I got to understand something of economics. I did economics O-level, which means I knew absolutely everything. And, uh, but that, the penny dropped to me that I, I was not a supporter of her policies at all, um, which is I admired her for being you know, awkward. I, I kind of, I, and I made the decision for a variety of reasons. You know, lots of my friends were Labour. Lancashire was broadly Labour. Uh, but I kind of felt I was a Liberal and that the Liberal Party was the party for awkward kids, and I was an awkward kid. And so at 16, I, I also paid £1.50 um, and, joined, and joined the Liberal Party, not in any expectation that it would lead you know, to me doing it for a job. Because even as a 16-year-old, um, starry-eyed and hope, hopeful as I was, even then I realised joining the Liberal Party was not an awesome... And um, I suppose I went into um, Parliament... Uh, first place in 2016 so yeah. you'd have been leader of the Lib yep. Dems at that point I mean had that always been a lifelong ambition or well, it's an interesting. Was it an ambition? I mean, it wasn't not an ambition. Just like being an MP was wasn't not an ambition, but. You know, as I as I said, that you know, I I knew joining the Liberals was not a fantastic career move. Um, it wasn't, you know, something that was automatically going to lead to a glittering power um, uh, experience and and me having a career in politics. But once I'd become an MP, and maybe once we became, so I was elected in '05, which was the last. Uh, new Labour term. It was the term where Blair transitioned into Brown, so to speak. And then I was re-elected for my second term in 2010, which of course was the coalition parliament. Um, and uh, a variety of things happened where I ended up being elected president of the party. At that point, people start talking of you as potential next leader, or at least a, um, a contender. And, you know, I'd be lying to you if I, did, if I said that didn't turn my head in some way. So, yeah, yes, I mean, in the same way that, you know, if, you, if you're, I guess I must have thought that I've been a member of this party since I was 16. I'm an MP. I'm now party president. Why wouldn't I want to run for leader? And some of my motives were good, and some of them were probably just a bit more, you know, sort of selfish and vain, if I'm honest with you. So uh, maybe, I suppose the, the short answer is yes, but it wasn't something I'd pinned my hopes on. And it was quite a difficult time to become leader, wasn't it? Well, yeah. So this is 2015. The Liberal Democrats have gone down from 63, no, 57 MPs to eight overnight. Um, uh, it was an absolute shellacking. <laughs> I was the only Lib Dem MP who got more than 50% of the vote, um, and therefore the only candidate. And it was a, a complete annihilation. And I, for what it's worth, um, I kind of thought that was the scenario where actually my 
skill set might have been most useful. <laughs> um, it's not top secret, because I've spoken about this elsewhere, and I think Nick Clegg may have done as well. But I was at my press officer's wedding uh, over the weekend in 2014, when uh, we'd just been massacred in the local elections, and we were about to be massacred in the European elections the night after. And I get a phone call. I'm literally pogo dancing to the clash with my, my press officer, um, the London calling, what else? And, uh, and the phone goes, and I looked at it, and I showed the screen to my press officer, who was getting married. <laughs> he really should have been paying attention to something else. And, of course, it said Nick Clegg, and he just goes, outside. So we went and took the call. But in the, in the end, Nick, Nick um, asked the question, and I'm sure I was not the only person he asked this of, this is all terrible, should I resign? Um, to cut a long story short, I kind of said, actually, I don't think it would make things any better. Um, if you personally, for your own family and your own well-being, want to go, absolutely, but I don't think you need to go. That was my advice to him. Of course, we then started to think, well, what would happen if he did? Would I run for leader? And we'll never know. But I, I, in my mind, my instincts would be not, have, uh, not, not to have done because I thought maybe I thought I did not have the skill set to become Deputy Prime Minister um, at that po point. But I thought I probably did have the skill set, just about, to pick up an absolutely devastated party after a very terrible election result, which is what I expected, and it's what we got. So, yeah, it was a difficult time, and, and I guess you're taking... I mean, I sometimes liken it to having taken over from a newly uh, the managership of a, a newly relegated team. But you weren't just relegated from the Premier League to the Championship. You were like what happened to Rangers a few years ago, where you relegated three divisions in one and everybody is uh, de devastated. You've lost, you know, um, I'll stop mixing my metaphors. You've lost nearly 90% of your MPs, and the party is just devastated. So it was a, it was a real, real challenge. And so you've, you've, my first... Uh, focus had to be internal. I knew nobody really knew who I was. I assumed the next election was a little while off. Actually, it was closer than we expected. Um, but my job was just to try and build morale and focus um, the members on, on staying part of the party and um, winning local elections and just believing that we had a, a purpose. I, mean, I, I genuinely think we could have faded to non-existence. It was entirely possible. Thank you got your, I suppose, dream job in some ways, <laughs> yeah. but not in the most of I idea of the circumstances, but playing to your skill set and all of that. So, um, but nearly, or almost the day, two years later, you end up um, deciding mm. to step down from the party leadership. Um, tell us about that. What drove that? Well, I mean, if you've followed this even slightly, you know the basics. And I, I, I never hid my Christian faith um, at all. It's interesting. I mean, I, I kind of we can go into my story later on if you like, but uh, I, uh, I, I was clear about that. And so pretty much on day one of my leadership, the questions were all about those aspects of Christianity which jar the most of the culture, which is basically about stuff to do with sex. And, and so and I don't think I handled them desperately well, played a pretty flimsy straight bat at them in the first instance. Um, so that was my first few days as leader, then it kind of went away, got on with the job, and then Theresa May calls this general election that nobody, including her, it would appear, was expecting. And, um, and, I, um, and the first, like, 10 hours of the campaign went brilliantly, and then they all came back again. And for the first week or so of what was a long seven-week general election that nobody was expecting, that was all people wanted to know. And you've got to think, remember, I mean, we were in a situation where the SNP had in the previous election, um, basically replaced us as a third party and some, you know, like six, seven, eight times more MPs than we have. My uh, window of publicity as the leader of what was now the fourth party in the kind of media scrum uh, every day was really small. Uh, I wanted us to talk about Brexit and the NHS, and all they wanted to do was talk about sex and the Bible. Um, and, um, uh, you know, which was, in one sense, you know, just ignore what it meant for me personally. I had a job to do. Um, my job was to be the major mouthpiece of a party that was seeking to make some kind of a comeback. Um, and, and yet, you know, it's a bit like having your, um, your advertising hoarding permanently vandalised every day so no one sees your message. So that was really, really difficult. 
and, and difficult for me personally because I, you know, you, you, I was kind of uh, massively, massively conflicted, wanting to be faithful, wanting to do a decent job um, as, a, as, as leader, and all this was going on. And so I guess I made a decision maybe a fortnight into the campaign, and it was a long campaign. Maybe it felt like it for you too, but it really felt like it for me. Um, our, we, we had the reliveried Crystal Palace team bus as the leader's bus. So I sat in the back, and I referred to it as the, the, the Pardew Boudoir, if you know anything about it. So Alan Pardew would have been the manager of, um, of Crystal Palace at the time, so it was where he would have sat normally. But it was reliveried, all yellow, and all the rest of it. Um, and in that back bit where I would sit um, with my table, which was set apart from the rest of the bus and sometimes people come in and sometimes they'd leave me uh, on my own just to read and think and unbeknownst to them pray I kind of came to the decision do you know what I've not handled this terribly well uh, my choices appear to be um, keep playing a straight bat to really difficult questions about my faith and therefore be a terrible leader or have to pretend that my faith isn't that important and be a terrible Christian uh, and I'm not saying that was the position I would necessarily have been in from the beginning if I'd handled it more wisely. But that was a position I found myself in. And I kind of took the view, do you know what? There is a third option. And that is to not do this. And much as it was a thing that I wanted to do, if guess it was my, the, the ultimate ambition in an earthly sense for me, it felt actually the wisest thing I could do, the most faithful thing I can do, probably the most useful thing I can do for the Liberal Democrats too, is just to let it go. But not now. We've got five weeks of the election campaign to go. I need to try to make sure I rescue this situation and we get a decentish result and then I'll do it afterwards which was the decision I made and the only people knew were me the Lord my wife and my pastor um, and that's it and, and in the end we cracked on and you know we went up from eight seats to 12 um, and we trebled the party's membership during the time that I was leader so it was not a terrible outcome by any means but it was module one completed and not the two, three, and four that maybe I'd envisage. But in the end, I think I made the better choice. And were others asking you to step down? There will be. I think I had one grey suit come in and tell me. But I also had plenty of other people that I should step down. But I had more people telling me to continue. Um, I don't mind, I don't think she mind me saying this, the opposite of a grey suit, uh, Joe Swinson, um, came in and, you know, urged me to carry on. Um, so I think if I'd wanted to carry on, I would have carried on. I don't think, you know, we'd had a decent-ish result. You know, it was a good away point, if I can use football parlance. Um, it was a reasonable result, given everything. But, so I don't think it was a clamour for me to go, really. One or two people might have wanted me to. But I'd, I'd made the decision, for what it's worth, I kind of came to the view that I would resign at some point over the summer. And then I had people coming to see me about plans for the future. Our chief executive is a lovely guy, and you know, we were talking about what we would do next and all the rest of it. And I, after he went, I just thought, you've been a fraud, Tim. You, if you're going to go in August or something like that, and people are planning for your next four or five years, you're leading up the garden path. So I kind of decided pretty much that day, no, if you're going to go, do it now. So we <laughs> ended up gathering together. Um, so I wrote myself a bit of a speech, gathered together. Uh, the party did a, a group of shell-shocked looking MPs, lords and staff who stood behind me, um, where I quoted Isaac Watts <laughs> and announced that I was, I was stepping down and, and why. Yeah, just remind us, what, uh, what did it look like? Can you remember the quote? Yeah, well, Isaac Watts uh, wrote many great hymns, including, I think, my favourite, uh, which is when I surveyed the wondrous cross. And it ends, of course, you know, um, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my heart, my life, my all. And so I kind of said, look, you know, imagine what it is to have joined the party at 16. Um, to then become a member of parliament, to then become a front, front bencher, to be the party's president during coalition, to then be its leader, and then to walk away when you didn't have to. Why would you give all that up? Well, it'd have to be for something so amazing, so divine. It demands my life, my heart, my all, and it does. It does. So I absolutely made the right decision, um, and I now absolutely love being the member of parliament for Westman and Lonsdale. There are lots of people who've been prime ministers or senior ministers or party leaders and when wait until this come back on let's come back on um you, when they give up you can tell that everything they do from now on is second 
miserable. And, um, and I hope you can tell that's not me. I think being party leader was a great um, duty. I'm pleased I did it. Being MP for Westmoreland and Lonsdale is a complete joy. And, and so, yeah, I often flippantly say, I'm really glad I did it, and I'm really glad I'm not doing it. Brilliant. And, um, you know, you talked about your Christian faith, your committed Christian, that obviously led into the decisions we just talked about. I mean, tell us, what, I mean, what does it mean to be a Christian? I mean, what's that about? Well, it's to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And he says he is the Son of God. He says he's God's promised Messiah. He said, says that um, all who believe in him will see eternal life. And uh, he himself makes staggering claims. I, uh, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which is a staggering statement. The number of people who would cast him as a great, interesting, wise teacher or a bit of a hippie. To say that, you've got to be a massive megalomaniac. You know, to, I am the way, not this is the way, I am the way, the truth, not a truth, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm sorry, that is not explicable in any other way other than this man making colossal claims about himself, colossal claims, and I believe to be, I believe it to be true. Uh, I believe, I can't prove it's true in the same way that scientists can prove something true in a lab, but I'm confident that the evidence for, um, for that being so is, um, uh, to quote a historian I heard interviewed last week, it's well north of 51%, so you better make a decision. And I mean, what led you to that point or making that decision? Um, so, um, my mum, uh, who is sadly no longer with us, um, was, it, as, when I was a teenager, she was a lecturer at what is now the University of Central Lancashire and was then Preston Poly. And uh, I came home from sixth form one evening, she came home from work, and she shared the uh, exciting news, dropping the bombshell, that she and about a third of her department, the business studies department, had been seconded uh, to a college in Singapore. Now, I've been to Spanish Ireland once when I was 12. I've never left the country apart from that at that point. So, big, big deal. Okay, so me and my sister finish our exams. She did GCSEs, I did uh, A-levels, and off we went with mum and others to Singapore. Me, just for five or six weeks before I came back to get A-level results. Uh, me being the one to go home first was key, because I got the rubbish room. Um, so the house we were staying in belonged to the college, I think. Either way, the previous tenants were uh, lecturers at university. They're only the two of them, so they, they didn't need such a big place. Um, any event, the, the room I got put in was the room they stuck, they'd left their books in. And it was, you know, I'd, I'd gone to Singapore with not loads of money, um, uh, so I couldn't go out on the town every night. Uh, I love my sister to bits, but I didn't want to spend all my time with her. Um, I'd brought one book, uh, which was a miserable book uh, called uh, Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kerstler. Great book, flipping miserable. Um, I brought my tapes, because that's what we listened to in those days, kids. Um, and, uh, and I got bored, and I ended up reading the books in the room. I didn't mean to. My first instincts were to... The first book I looked at, oddly enough, was about sexual ethics called I Once Loved a Girl. And I read the first bit of it, I thought, get knotted. Um, I did, however, rip off the title of the book and me and the guys use it as a song. Um, so we had a terrible song called I Once Loved a Girl. But I didn't, I was not interested in what was there. It, I, it jarred with me. It was not attractive to me. And, and so actually the first books that I properly read that were on those shelves were the A.A. Milne ones. I reread, despite being 18, all of the Winnie the Pooh. And then I got so bored, I read some stuff that, I guess you'd call it um, prophecy, apologetics. Some of the things that struck me um, were the countless number, well, it probably isn't countless, it's, but it's well, well more than, it's well, well over 200, prophecies in the Old Testament that relate to the personage of the Messiah, and that they had all, um, all, all pretty obviously and, and without spin, been fulfilled in this person, Jesus of Nazareth. I then separately, I don't think that was at the time, but anyway, separately began to, under, began to understood, uh, understand that the, the New Testament documents are extremely reliable bits of history and happy to go into details to why I think that's the case. 
um, but they are, and they're very hard to dismiss as anything other than either um, hoax or truth. I think all the other potential uh, explanations for them just don't hold any water, and, you know, it, and it's not intellectually consistent to hold that they are myth or anything, of the, or, or interesting philosophy or teaching. They are clearly meant um, to persuade us of who Jesus is. And, and that we're to act upon that. That's why they're written. The other thing that I did understand or did read at that time, and I've since checked it out, stacks up, is that the Old Testament documents that contain references to the coming of the Messiah that, are, that do come true in those first-hand eyewitness documents that we call uh, the New Testament, um, they are definitely written, definitely, definitely written long before Jesus' time. How do we know that? Um, well, we know because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we know that every book except Esther, I think, uh, was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, every one. And they're carbon dated. And they're carbon dated to well before New Testament times. Um, and so there's, there's no question that they were written to meet the reality of Jesus um, it's hard to make the case that Jesus' story was written to meet the reality of the prophecies. And you begin to think, so look, I was sat there in my room um, one night uh, in Singapore when I was 18, and I just thought, oh, flippin' heck, it's true. Um, and so I can't remember the exact words I used, but at that point I put my trust in Jesus. I... Sorry, wait for it to come back. I thought Christianity... What should I do? There we are. That's fine. I think that's worked. Whatever. Whatever I moved, it worked. Uh, we're going to switch. I'll keep going. Yeah. The, I think the thing that really struck me is that Christianity is dynamic. And it's, oh, we're on a journey. And that it's not all over. And the, the, the Bible is not just a book where everything's fixed. I mean, in one sense it is. In the Bible itself teaches us, the Bible itself teaches us that there is nothing to be added to the Bible. Um, however, the God's plan did not stop in, uh, at the last full stop at the end of Revelation. Um, it is continuing, it's going on now, there is a future, and we're on a trajectory. And I thought that therefore means something very much for me. I have to choose, am I going to follow this Jesus, or am I going to ignore what now seems logically to me to be the truth? Amazing. And I mean, so would you say it's been plain sailing? Absolutely. No, not in the slightest. Um, uh, so, no, it's re I mean, the thing is, Christianity, culture, regeneration, I don't know how much this has been, is all, let me, uh, I keep going. Is that all right? Shall I, is that what, I'll do that. It's fine. I better turn the thing off the battery. I don't want to get back. One of the few things I learned from being a lead singer. Um, Where we? Yeah, uh, plain sailing has not been. But I think if we're trusting in Christ, then we are, first of all, you're going against the grain of your own life. Because our instincts, what does it mean to be a sinner and to, be need, and to need forgiving? It is to um, treat God like a stranger, an imposter in his own world. It is to think you want all the things that God gives you, you just don't want him. And you want to push him out of uh, your life by ignoring him, by uh, living as if you were God rather than, than him. So it's always going to be difficult. If we're following Christ, it's always going to be difficult. And in every era in which we live, uh, now, 500 years ago, 500 years in the future, whenever it might be, it's always going to be a challenge. Uh, now, having said that, it's also utterly joyful because it turns out that your life has ultimate meaning. It turns out that um, however long I live uh, in this life, that's not the end of things. Um, and it turns out that my failures are all completely and utterly temporary. 
and his victory is completely and utterly eternal, and I'm secure in him. So when I really remind myself um, who Jesus is, what he means to me, and what I mean to him, then it's an absolutely joyful existence, um, a liberating existence, but it's challenging because we're tempted to do stuff we're not meant to do. Uh, we're tempted to chuck God's grace back in his face and to live, live the lives that we want to live. And then also, you then find yourself in a kind of secular world as we're in, where people sometimes find it hard to understand how a person um, can be a modern person and believe all this weird stuff in the Bible, and that could be challenging. And the only thing you can do, and I fail often, is to be patient with people, um, be curious about why they think what they think um, and understand their hostility and gently try to explain to them why you think Jesus is worth being at least prepared to give absolutely everything up for. And um, for the person who thinks it all sounds too costly, I mean, why would you say it's worth it? Well, it is costly. Um, I mean, we're told, aren't we, that, you know, you, I mean, um, that, um, you know, what profits a, a person that they gain the whole world and lose their life? What do we mean there? That we mean eternal life. And, and so, essentially, we are told if we're trusting in Christ, then his death in our place on the cross means that we inherit, if we say, his justification and his right to be with the Father, and we will be with him forever uh, with joy utterly unconfined. And that's what we were made for in the first place. And I think that is, so that is amazing, and that means it's worth sticking with. Uh, and if it all sounds so incredible and unlikely and all the rest of it, um, I can understand that. It's too bad to be true, and it's too good to be true. Uh, the notion of judgment, too bad to be true. That we need forgiving, too bad to be true. That there is one who will forgive us, that there is eternal life, too good to be true. But the evidence is really, really strong in the end. Look, uh, we can get ourselves in a tiz. I'm going out for a, a, a pizza with a really good old mate of mine who was not quite in the band, but he was one of the same group of friends. Um, I went out with him earlier in the year. In fact, we, I, to, I spoke about him when I was at chapel a few months ago. And I remember him saying to me, um, out of nowhere, Tim, I'm an atheist now. Mm. I said, all right, okay. And before I could say anything, he said, I did, but I think we go somewhere when we die. And I said, well, then you're not an atheist then, are you? Um, and he said, yeah, but it's also very confusing. Which one do we follow? Which mm. God do we follow? Isn't it all very confusing? And, and, I, and I, I'm going to make it sound super simplistic here, but may, maybe that's because it is. The resurrection's key. If the resurrection happened, there is a God, and we know his name. You can call off the search. You know, all, the, all the other routes, they obviously won't be the right one because we've just identified the right one. And so did the resurrection happen? And can I prove it to you in a laboratory? No. Can I, um, can I be confident um, that in all likelihood it happened? Absolutely. The evidence is astonishing if only you would look into it. And, and, and so one of the reasons why people doubt that mm. why is, you know, I guess we, we have a, an instinctive, dare I say, snobbery against the supernatural. We think we assume it can't happen. Mm. If you've ever read Richard Dawkins' book, by the way, The God Delusion, uh, and I respect Richard Dawkins, he says interesting things, he's done some great work, but The God Delusion isn't very good. Um, and I read through it. The, the argument, the writing's super, but the argument's rubbish. The argument is basically, look, there isn't a God because it just can't be, don't be silly. Save yourself 400 pages, because that's all it says. Um, there's no attempt to tackle the evidence of the Christianity, because, well, it wouldn't be true even if that evidence was compelling, because there can't be a God, can there? And that's the, and, and, and there is that, and you find some people in the church who think that kind of thing. Or they, well, you know, they, this can't have happened because there's miracles, and miracles can't happen, can they? Well, are we open-minded enough to believe that a God of the universe might just be able to pull off walking on water? I reckon he might. You know, the idea that there could be a God who is a kind of part-time God who could make the universe but somehow can't do a virgin birth, come off it. I mean, if there's a God, there will be an almighty, all-powerful God, not some happy shopper God that clocks off at 5 p.m. Um, so I'm going on a bit now, aren't I? But, but I, think that, so I think the evidence is compelling, really compelling. Um, and, and for me, it's absolutely worth going. Cause, cause, so God is with you through good times and bad. And what grace, which is an interesting concept to get to grips with, means is that if you put your trust in Jesus, he will not drop you. He will not drop you. 
And if I remember the things that motivate, then why did Cathy come home really resonate with me and why did it politicise me? It deeply, deeply upset me because of Cathy's plight. But it also angered me because if you watch the film, there are all these people, men with horn-rimmed spectacles mostly, uh, officials from the council and all the rest of it, who just, just dropped her, just passed the book, wouldn't go the distance with her. And Jesus tells us he will go the distance for you. And that he has, if you think there's anything you've done that is too bad for God to accept you, to, for you to be forgiven from, what you're basically saying is Jesus' death is not quite good enough for you. That somehow there is a sin that you did is so awful, Jesus' death can't cover it. When Jesus died, or as he died, he shouts, he cries, it is finished. And that is an absolute wiping the slate clean of everybody who trusts in him. That is beyond liberating. It's beyond moving. And knowing that you, if you are a Christian, are as acceptable to God on your worst day as a Christian as you are on your best day is not constraining. It is utterly, sweetly liberating. And um, Tim, just thinking back to politics then, I mean, can faith politics mix? Did you think that when you started out? <laughs> well, so I, so I had become a Christian at 18, at least I think I became a Christian at 18. We can perhaps talk about um, the, uh, the parenthesis or the postscript to that story in a minute, if you like. But um, I'd been backslid in my 20s for the reason that young men sometimes backslide. And in my early 30s, I unbackslid. Uh, I unbackslid, by the way, uh, after reading Carl Sagan, who was an absolute arch-atheist. And, uh, and he was, in, his, in his, the book I read, he was constantly returning to the the notion that Christianity in particular and religion in general had held human beings back and was bad. And I got to the end of this book and thought, I love Carl Sagan, and I really did. I thought he's a wonderful man. Um, but I thought, I, I'm not, not following Christ because I agree with anything that Carl Sagan says about Christianity. I'm not following Christ because it's inconvenient, which is intellectually indefensible. And so in the, the days or weeks after having read the arch-atheist Carl Sagan, I recommitted myself to following Christ. Now, the reason why I mentioned that there is because I kind of had the zeal of the reconvert um, uh, as I became an MP, maybe just two or three years after that. And I, so I did give quite a lot of thought to, you know, what's the role of a Christian in, in Parliament? And I certainly, it certainly occurred to me that I didn't think it was my job as a Christian to make people who are not Christians live as though they were. Um, it should have an impact on my conduct, but it shouldn't mean that I go around, you know, moralizing and all the rest of it. Um, I actually think it's more complex than that. Okay. There will be some people who say that, you know, well, you can believe what you like, but it's private. Leave it at the door. You know, keep it to yourself. And that is another regular argument that is baloney when you start to even examine it beyond, but even at surface level. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, so we've all got a worldview, mm. all of us. Um, who says a in inverted commas, religious worldview is more or less valid than a one that you've got by reading Karl Marx or Milton Friedman or anything else for that matter. Um, and, and, and the reality is we would not expect a Marxist, for example, to leave everything that she or he had learned from Das Kapital at the door before they entered the meeting room. Why on earth would you expect somebody um, whose worldview is formed by their faith in Christ to leave theirs? That's just dishonest and it's inconsistent. And it's a reminder that maybe in the West we have made this error of assuming that the absence of faith in God, or a God, any God, is the neutral position. That effectively atheism, or maybe agnosticism, is the neutral position. It isn't. There isn't Christianity isn't neutral either, by the way. Nothing is neutral. And if we're going to be properly liberal about this, we're going to accept that a proper plural society is not one where we make these silly assumptions that the absence of faith is neutral and that faith is eccentric. We've got to accept that we, are, we will have a whole bunch of jarring worldviews and a decent liberal society is one where we'll defend the rights of people who we wholly disagree with to have the views that they hold. I mean, I often say that any old fascist can defend people who are like them. 
takes a liberal to fight for people who are wildly different to them and maybe even object to them. Um, so, so I know I think you know Christianity absolutely has got a place in in politics. I however, I, I do however, um, massively oppose the idea of a, a theocracy. Um, and I hate to say this, but I am broadly speaking in favour of disestablishing the Church of England. I kind of think we shouldn't have a state religion. But I also say we the, the atheism shouldn't be the state religion either. And the danger is that that's where we're moving. And atheism is a belief system, whatever anybody says. <laughs> And um, Tim, so when I came into politics in 2016, I mean, just since then, we've certainly had a, t a tumultuous number of years. I mean, should we be disillusioned with politicians, with um, politics? Well, no more than normal. I think, I, th I think, um, so what do I mean? I, th I think the, I'm gonna go and, um, rock out C.S. Lewis now. We're, we're quite a way into this conversation and we've not mentioned C.S. Lewis, so yeah. it's time to do it. I think there's a law that says we need <laughs> to. Uh, so amongst the things that he said that I really do think is very important um, as we think about these things, is he talked about the snobbery of chronology and okay. the idea, which he, which he can mean, which you can take two ways. One is this idea that progressivism is always right and that basically humanity, for all its ups and downs, is basically heading in the right direction. It's all getting better. We're getting more and more enlightened and we're heading towards a, you know, a better, better place. Um, I don't think that's true. Um, the alternative, of course, um, is, the op alter is the other form of snobbery, of snobbery of chronology where we think everything's just you know, inexorably getting worse and that, you know, that, that yesterday is a, a better place than today. And I think that society as a whole, and particularly people who would be on the liberal sort of left of society, uh, might think the former, and it might be that people in the church and maybe people on the right might think the latter. And I think they're both wrong. Um, the fact is that this is a fallen world, and it has been um, uh, since the fall, and, and therefore, you know, there will be different eras but we haven't to think that things are especially awful now compared to where they were, you know, yesteryear. The, the, the main thing that's better about yesterday um, compared to today is that I was younger. Um, and, that's most, and that's mostly why people think that, whether they accept it or not, because we're used to the things that went by in the past. Having said that, there are some issues, I think, in our politics today which I think should give us cause to, for concern. I think the decline in truth um, I think the decline in the verifi verifi verifiability of truth is deeply concerning. I think the growth of what we might call identity politics, where people have disagreements and it feels personal rather. So if I disagreed with somebody on whether you know, British gas should be privatised or not in the 80s. I wasn't really getting to the heart of who they were and they weren't giving to the heart of who I was. It was a disagreement on policy. But if we talk now about issues like nationalism or internationalism or other issues of identity, I don't mean to, but I might offend someone to their very, very, very core by, um, by, by, by what I say and what I think. So I think these are difficult times. I think we have seen at times a lack of integrity in leadership roles in the West, and that is partly because of the culture war. It's partly because the culture war, um, has two aspects of it. One is, one is if you like, the, the media, literally, and the other is um, just how, how beliefs are formed. Let's do the latter first. In the culture war, it seems to me that it's more about who you believe rather than what you believe. What I mean by that is, Let's go back to the ultimate culture war battle in 2016 between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, if Donald Trump says X and you like Donald Trump, it doesn't matter how awful the thing you say, he said is, you will believe him even if you don't believe it. And the same was probably true, vice versa, with Hillary Clinton, um, that if you agree with her, even if you don't agree with what she says, you're going to agree with her. And so it feels that people are much more likely to ignore truth if it doesn't fit the party, I don't really mean party, the tribe that they've got themselves into, which makes it dangerous and toxic. And then the other thing is the media, by which I mean social media. I mean, a Andy Warhol in the 60s said that in the future everybody will be famous for 15 minutes. Mm. Totally wrong. Everybody's famous all the time, now if they want to be. Um, and we are in a position where we can emote our opinions uh, to as many people as we like, as often as we like, and we have this situation with 24-7 news, and that means that the important becomes trivial and the trivial becomes important and so people get 
what shall I say, fatigued by scandal and tragedy and outrage. And you know, if you're a leading politician, if you do, or your guide does something terrible, if you can just sit it out for three, four, five days, the cycle will move on because we all get bored of that. And that leads to a loss of accountability. So I, I, I don't want to say, always oh, aren't things terrible nowadays compared to how they were. But in that respect, that's something we should be worried about. And if you're a Christian, you should care about the truth, but you should also deeply care about truth. And even if it's the guy or the girl you like and approve of politically, be really careful not to at least test what it is that they say is true or not. Tim, are you optimistic about the future? Well, I mean, I suppose the, um, the flippant response is that I have read to the end of Revelation. I am a Christian. I know it ends well. Um, and, and, and honestly, I, I don't, it's only partly flippant, but I mean, I mean, I don't need to panic about these things. So uh, the, the, the serious answer is, the deeply serious answer is, is that. Uh, I mean, if you, if you look at Revelation, for example, um, it, those of you who know even a little bit about it will probably know lots of references to Babylon in, uh, in Revelation. Why? I don't know. Um, but I've certainly heard it said um, that, of course, who were the first readers? Uh, of the um, uh, of the book of Revelation, and they were um, Christians, persecuted Christians in first century Rome. Babylon at that point was in rubble, and it had been for six hundred years. Why make a thing about Babylon? Well, maybe one reading one reading of it is that those first readers were living under the might and the threat and the persecution of a very real empire that was not in rubble. But Revelation reminds us that the mightiest of empires. Every government, every regime, every referendum result, every presidency, all end up in rubble. All of them. All of them, set one. Set one. And, and so that means that as a Christian, we kind of have permission to not panic, but to still care very, very deeply. And what is Jesus' um, evidence? What is his uh, example to us? Well, I think it, I, I often use this, so forgive me if you've heard me say it before. But I think the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead tells us something really instructive about what our approach to politics and current affairs and the stuff in our community should be. So yeah, don't panic, but what does Jesus do as he raises Lazarus? Well, first of all, before he does that, he speaks to Martha and Mary, his sisters, who are beside themselves. And he, I think three times in that passage, Jesus is recorded as having been either deeply moved or, of course, famously, Jesus wept. Mm. I am not a New Testament scholar, uh, not, a, not an understander of New Testament Greek or Aramaic or not, but I know people who are. <laughs> and I know that that is a really weak, gentle English translation. Jesus wept and Jesus was deeply moved. It actually translates far better that Jesus approached the, to the tomb bawling like a wild animal in utter utter rage. Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Not really. Um, and what was he angry at? What was, what was his distress um, about? And it is what? It, it, it's that he hates the thing that we hate just as much as we hate it. And of course, he enters into that passion and that pain, but he's God and he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why? <laughs> Why is he like this? And he couldn't, maybe you'd expect him to say, come on girls, pull yourselves together, see what I'm about to do. But he doesn't do that, and he's not fake. And so what we see is, yes, he knows it ends well, and he enters in authentically, feels it deeply, breaks his heart in another moment. And I think that is how, if you are a Christian, you relate to world events and local events. You do not panic because it ends well. You put your trust in Christ, and you enter in with all you've got, and you're prepared to get your heart broken. Brilliant. Thanks, Tim. Well, we're going to end there. Um, that's been brilliant. Um, thanks so much. Um, we're going to take about 10 minutes now. If you want to go and get yourself a drink, um, please do that. There's time to enter more questions into the Slido, and um, we'll come back and regroup in about 10. I'm pudding. So, yeah, head to the back, pudding and drinks, and we'll see you in about 10 minutes.
Brilliant. Um, come and grab a seat. And um, we've got uh, lots of great questions. So back to Claire and Tim. Brilliant. Um, thank you so much for your questions. Um, just to say, we will be um, staying clear of the more party political ones. So sorry if that was your question. Maybe <laughs> grab Tim afterwards. Um, Tim, to start with, um, who is the longest serving manager of Blackburn Rovers? Ever? Um, that's a really good question. I don't think I know the answer to it. Uh, we haven't had very many long serving ones for quite a while. We had Tony Mowbray for five years. Uh, it might be Don Mackay. Do you know the answer? I Is don't know the answer. Does anyone know the answer? <laughs> Any? Don't know. Oh, there you go. No, it's, uh, luckily they didn't ask me that on Mastermind. <laughs> Brilliant. And um, another question. Have you read Lord of the Rings? No. Never read Lord of the Rings. I know, I know Tolkien was C.S. Lewis's big mate, but I never... We did The Hobbit at school, and I didn't get particularly taken by it at all. So, no, I'm not really a Tolkien fan. I'm not a detractor, but he never, he never really caught me. I thought it was all the prog rock, all the prog rock kids were into, um, in, into Tolkien, and I was a punk. Um, so, questions, uh, two questions here about your younger self. Um, <laughs> what would your advice be to a young Christian considering going into politics? And uh, a second one, what advice would you give to your younger self in handling challenging questions related to faith? Yeah, I mean, they're just, they're, they are similar questions, those, aren't they, really? So the advice I would give to any Christian thinking about going into politics now is to do several things, but two in particular. Uh, w one is to remember that having... Uh, regular fellowship, being around other Christians regularly is really important. And I don't just mean turning up to church on a Sunday. I mean being in a house group, being in a small prayer group, having a mate or two or three who you can be accountable to and them with you as well. So that's really important in any walk of life, but especially, I think, if you're going into politics. But the other thing, I think, is you've got to make sure some of the people on your journey are also Christians. Um, so not everybody... Um, for example, you know, if, you, if you're, you know, Labour and um, not everybody in your prayer group or at your church uh, needs to be Labour, right? Um, but I think if you've got a core team of 10 people who are your key top volunteers, um, I think you need to make sure maybe three of them are Christians. Mm. And have one of the issues I think I faced is that I had people around me who didn't get my faith. And then I had some people some Christians who were around me who didn't get the politics and didn't understand why some issues were difficult and maybe some less so. So I think that's a really important thing. And then the other thing to say is, you know, you, there's, there's no crime in trying to win. Winning elections is kind of your passport to making a difference in people's lives. It's really a worthwhile thing to do. And so, you know, political martyrdom um, is a, you know, a, a noble thing, but don't go looking for it, so be careful. If you know your Daniel, you'll know that he served for many, many years kind of fairly quietly in a senior position um, in, um, in Babylon, in Persia, uh, uh, without having to, um, you know, make the big decision that led him to the lion's den. Uh, and so don't go looking for those sort of things. Serving dutifully is fine, but you do need to be prepared for a moment, maybe, which could come and it might not, where you may have to risk everything. Um, and it won't be Daniel type risking everything, it'll be you having a setback, you not getting elected. That's the kind of thing you need prepared to do. Um, but all the same, I think that, you know, that it is a, an honourable and reasonable thing to fight elections and try and win them and to, to do well, because that's how you can do some good. Brilliant. Thanks, Tim. Um, so many MPs appear self-serving. Is there um, a reason, cause for hope? Or am I right to despair about our leaders? Well, look, if we believe the Bible, we know that everybody, including the person who asked that question, is a sinner in need of grace and forgiveness. Um, and that includes the politicians as well. I think that... So, um, politics as being self-centred, a self-centred profession, so to speak. There's an element of it. There really is. And there are times when I look at politics and politicians and I kind of think... you know, I, I kind of don't mind being led by people who I disagree with, that's kind of life. I do mind um, being led by people when that is the case, 
globally or even nationally who I don't really respect or trust. That does, when I, when I feel there's a lack of integrity, that deeply troubles me. I'm not convinced politics is that much worse than any other sphere. Mm. I mean, so my, my book and my podcast are called A Mucky Business, and they are uh, called that because of something that a guy at Christian Union said to me uh, at some uh, house party, which is about as exciting as you imagine it might be, um, in my first term at university. He knew I was involved in politics and I was at Christian Union. He goes, Tim, why are you involved in politics? It's a mucky business. And my answer was, I can't remember what it was at the time, but more recently I've thought about that a lot. Is politics a mucky business? Yes, it is. And so is everything else since the fall. And we're not meant to hide away. So I, I, I kind of push back and say, I'm not convinced politics and politicians are that much worse um, than any other sphere of life. And then again, I might flippantly say, um, you know, about being self-centered and what have you. There is a fantastic phrase. Um, I don't know who said it, but it is that uh, politics is showbiz for ugly people. Hmm. Um, and and the, the actually the, the vice that afflicts Christians, of, 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 uh, afflicts politicians um, the most is not the kind of lurid stuff we read about in the tabloids. It's actually vanity. Um, and so, you know, so th th there, and, and often you look at people's motives and I, I don't want to be personal about this, but I will look at um, just observing Theresa May and Boris Johnson, who I've got differing opinions of. You know, I don't agree with them politically. I've obviously got significant, well, obviously I have significantly more regard for Theresa May than I do for Boris Johnson. But what, what marked the end of their times in office quite significantly was their desire to hang on, fair enough, hang on for a particular reason, and that's to outdo somebody else. So it's very obvious that Theresa May was trying to hang on long enough so that she had been Prime Minister for longer than Gordon Brown. I mean, come on, does that matter? It did to her. Mm. Um, and with Boris Johnson, 100%, it was to hang on for long enough to be Prime Minister longer than Theresa May. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, Rishi Sunak didn't have to do that long to overdo, outdo his predecessor. But, um, but, you, you, but, there is, but th th that matters to people. Mm. just shows you how... Um, <laughs> vain sometimes it can be and uh and um, but but no i, I kind of think politicians are, are are sinners like everybody else we're just holding more important positions and therefore we do more harm hmm. and um do you think it's possible for a christian to be a political leader yeah i mean look um for all of my travails which could have been different if i'd handled um that situation better and more wisely maybe um I got to be leader of the party. I got to be president of the party during its only time in government since the war. Uh, you know, you look at um, other people who are, who are very senior. I mean, Kate Forbes was a handful of votes off becoming leader, not only of the SNP, but of, um, of Scotland. And so I think that, that there, some people will say, is there a glass ceiling for Christians in politics? The answer is possibly, but if, if there is, it's quite high. Mm. Um, and then the other thing to say is, as I said earlier on about Christianity being countercultural, it is. And so you, there are times in your life, whatever it is you do for a living, whatever it is you do with your life, where you are going to find that the things that you believe, the life that you live, that your choice to follow Jesus is just going to jar and it will cost you. Um, and, you know, and, and the Bible is, is very straightforward about the fact this is, this is a a journey which is a costly one for you in this life um, and it's totally worth it and so if that means you not getting elected to the thing you wanted to get elected to or promote the thing that you are uh, going to be promoted to or or whatever it might be you may be you know shouted down or torn off a strip or two or excluded or talked about in an unpleasant manner because of your faith look we're told to expect these things as Christians in, in this world you will have trouble says Jesus well he, he keeps that promise every day you will have trouble. And I think that the question is then, as us as Christians, how do we react to that? Um, and it's not to whine about being cancelled. It's to turn the other cheek and offer a kind of graciousness towards others that maybe they haven't shown towards us. Brilliant. Thanks, Tim. Um, there are documents from many religions that provide evidence to support their doctrines. How do you decide which ones to believe? Well, there aren't that many, if I'm honest with you. Um, I mean, we're really talking about the three big religions, if you like, the Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, I think there's, 
I don't think most other faiths would really claim there is much in the way of any documentary evidence that really proves a kind of historical um, support for their for their faith. And there are some which we might refer to as cults, where um, people will say they had an experience and they wrote that down. Um, and so it's really tricky, isn't it? Really, it all hangs on the resurrection again. Um, if the resurrection happened, then Judaism has got has 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 missed what was predicted in its scriptures. Um, and I'm going to be very careful about saying this, that both the Quran and the New Testament talk about Jesus Christ. And I'll say this really gently. Um, one of them was written by eyewitnesses in the era of people who knew Jesus personally, and one was written 600 years later. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, if you know it all ends well with the second coming, is there a risk that you worry less about improving this world compared to someone who thinks this is it? Yes, and um, thank you, because I think that is one, when, I, when we think about how Christians do politics badly, uh, or why it is we are either afraid of politics or we are um, a bit shruggy about it. That can be one of the, I think there are lots of reasons why uh, Christians um, uh, uh, give uh, politics a very, very wide berth. And one of them is that, oh, well, you know, we're all going to heaven, this is all pointless. <laughs> um, and I, I'll not, you know, uh, go uh, back into the account of, of Jesus and the raising of Lazarus, but that is a reminder, and indeed how he treats people one by one throughout his time and how we are taught, that we are meant to serve. If, if God is real, if Jesus is who he says he is, then every single thing you do has significance. And that means how you treat people matters. So I think we're not given, quite the opposite, I think we're not given um, sanction to kind of just shrug and think, ah, well, doesn't really matter. We should, if, if God, if every single human being is made in the image of God, then we're not just equal, we are loftily equal. We are, I mean, I don't know if you're the kind of nerd I am who looks at the, um, we talked about things that I'm interested in. One thing I didn't mm. mention is I'm a complete space nerd. Um, and so if you look at some of the James Webb telescope images that are freely available on the web, they blow your flipping mind. These are things from billions of light years away, the most ornate, beautiful things. Any one of those, or all of those, are not as important as any single one of you. You're more important than any one of those things because when God made those things, they were good. When he made you, you were made in his image, you are very good. And so when a thing, a bad thing, whether it be poverty, whether it be uh, bereavement, whatever it might be, happens to you, a thing like that happens to you, something bad has happened to somebody who bears the image of God and has ultimate dignity. So I am compelled to care, and if I'm trusting in Christ, then I will care. And so, no, I think, you know, shrugging it off to say, oh, it'll all end well, you've not read your Bible properly. Brilliant. I'm sorry, we haven't got through all the questions, but I'm aware it's 9.30, so just one more. If someone wanted to um, find out more or think through a bit more about Christianity, um, what would you suggest? Well, I mean, if there's anybody here who's, who thinks like that, and you recognise anybody here who is a Christian, talk to them. There are no stupid questions, I'm still asking them. If you are looking for stuff um, to help you think these things through, uh, there are a variety of books that I would point you towards. If you're somebody who thinks what I think about the resurrection is just a bit nonsense, there are lots of books I could point you to, but a really short one by a lovely guy called Val Grieve, who's no longer with us, who wrote um, uh, Your Verdict uh, on the Empty Tomb. He's basically, he's a, he's a lawyer, uh, he was a lawyer, and he writes the case, he examines the case from a courtroom perspective. It's massively compelling, but it is written very, very well. Um, I would recommend you you look at that. Um, but in the end, d don't just leave it. And the other thing I want to say to you as well is that I didn't mention this bit of my testimony because, you know, um, it feels a bit ridiculous, but I'll say it anyway. When, when I was nine, um, so I say I became a Christian at 18, maybe I didn't. When I was nine, um, my mum, who was a very much a child of the 60s and 70s. She had a friend who was even more that than her and was into Nostradamus and astrology and all sorts of hippie stuff. And one night, this friend brought round a, a, a chap um, and our house was just this very open plan, sort of old ancient terrace house. If the cat coughed in the basement, you could hear it in my bedroom. And, and so I could hear them downstairs. And this guy said, he was clearly a Christian, 
to my mum and Yvonne, he implored them to put their trust, to ask Jesus into their hearts. I was nine and I heard this and it sounded important and so I did and thought nothing else of it. Didn't say anything to anybody. I guess I probably prayed when I got given a Gideon Bible at school a year or two later. I'm, I read it reasonably often, but I don't think I thought much more about what it meant. So I've made, when I talked about prophecy and apologetics and evidence and all that, there's a danger that that's me being vain. Mm. It's true, but there's a danger that what I'm actually saying to you is look at clever Tim who cleverly discovered this clever thing. Mm. Actually, the salvation, Christianity, is accessible to the simplest of people. It is simply an act of trust. You don't need to pass an exam. You don't need to be certain about anything. You know, if you see a bus going past and it says it's going to Westminster, you've got to decide whether you're getting on it or not. You might only be 51% sure it's actually going to Westminster. Are you going to trust it enough to get on the bus? And my encouragement is get on the bus. Simple faith will do it. All you need to do is ask Christ to be your saviour, be your Lord, and the rest will follow. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Tim. I'm going to hand back to Andy. Um, what, a, what a wonderful evening. There's so much to think about, whether we're convinced Christians already or whether we're still thinking these things through. Um, Tim, thank you so much for, for coming after a busy day in the middle of a busy week. We've really enjoyed um, listening to you. Uh, two very brief notices before we finish. If you would consider yourself someone who's still thinking about the Christian faith, we would love to invite you to our Essentials course. That you should have received a flyer for that when you came in. It's four Wednesdays um, in January. Um, it's just an hour, short films, conversation, pizza, £10 for four weeks. You can sign up on the back of that. Um, it's very relaxed. No, as Tim said, there's no such thing as a silly question. We'd love to encourage you to, to come to that. But before we get to that, um, Christmas is just next month. And uh, hopefully, again, you received invitations to our Christmas services. Uh, Chris Dingle service, really great thing for, for children, especially, and families. And then a, a wonderful carol service on the 17th. And then two events, uh, obviously, Christmas uh, weekend. Um, uh, so thank you so much for coming. Um, I wonder if we could just give Tim um, and Claire, especially Tim. Thank you.